Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. This episode is brought to you by Huggies Little Movers. Huggies knows that babies come in all shapes and sizes, and your tushies do too. Huggies Little Movers is their best-fitting diaper ever with its curved and stretchy fit. Babies, no matter what kind of butt you've got, you'll feel comfy while your mushy little tushy wiggles and jiggles all around. Huggies Little Movers are curved with up to 12-hour protection against leaks. Get your baby butt in Huggies best-fitting diaper. Huggies Little Movers. We got you, baby. Do you think bananas are healthy? Think again. I'm Dr. Stephen Gundry, best-selling author of the Plant Paradox series, and on the Dr. Gundry podcast, you're going to learn the foods to eat and the ones to avoid to lose weight, boost your energy, and feel your most vibrant, active self this year. You'll also learn simple tips from the world's top experts on health and nutrition. Plus, you'll discover the truth about calories, how running could actually be hurting your health, and why fat won't make you fat. Subscribe now to the Dr. Gundry Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Because I'm Dr. Gundry, and I'm always looking out for you. Hey everyone, welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. As always, we appreciate you supporting the people that support the pods. So we can keep the winds in the sail of the Corolla pirate ship. Uh, again, do check out After Dark, and don't forget we do a streaming show. We've had some great guests. We've had Dr. Ben Carson. I'm going to have uh, uh, Vinay Prasad. We had uh, – who else have I had, Gary? I've had all kinds of people in there lately. You've had more people I, than I can count. Lisa yeah. Stroman was on recently. Oh, my God. So it, please do check that stream out. It's at drdrew.com. Today is no exception to that uh, great lineup we've had lately. We have David Wallace-Wells. His book is The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. It was originally released in 2019. It's now paperback as of March 2020. Uh, it's an expansion of a 2017 essay of the same name, which appeared in New York Magazine where uh, David is the editor-at-large, and you can follow David at Twitter at D. Wallace, W-A-L-L-A-C-E, like William Wallace. Wells, D. Wallace Wells. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me, David. It's great to be here. Great to talk to you. So uh, you caught my attention with a recent New York article, New York Magazine article around the world's response to COVID. And I just thought to myself that there was a ton packed into that article and I I wanted to share it with this audience. A, and I had this sense that you were being a good journalist and were just reporting, but you had a – I don't know. I felt I felt like there's there's an opinion burgeoning underneath all. <laughs> like you you've learned something. Like you learned something. And I, I just wondered to myself, what did he learn from this? I'd love to hear from his point of view. Is that is that fair enough? Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of um, you know liberal Americans who lived through the pandemic, I spent many of the first months freaking out about the American response, freaking out about Donald Trump's leadership and how little was being done at the federal level to really prepare a proper response to what, you know, seemed pretty clear to me was a really terrifying disease threat. Um, And in fact, I wrote a few pieces along those lines in the early spring, um, faulting the president and not just the president, but, you know, American leadership all the way down the the hierarchy. And as time wore on, um, we got through the summer and into the fall, and I started thinking a little more expansively about our response. I noticed that, you know, measured by this sort of crude metric of deaths per million citizens, at least, which is, it's an imperfect metric, but it's, it's probably the best thing we have to do comparative national um, analysis measured by that, you know, the U S actually hadn't done an especially poor job. We did much, much worse than the countries of East Asia and Oceania, but compared to the countries we think of as our peers, you know, Germany, the UK, really the EU as a whole, and indeed all through the Americas, we were, you know, maybe a little worse than average, um, but especially considering our rates of comorbidities, that that probably qualifies us as about an average performance. So, so let's and, let's let's stop right there and because let's try to parse some of that out. What is your hunch on East Asia? Uh, I don't see where their policies were that much different than ours. Really, what do you think went on there? I think there are a lot of factors, and you know, one of the things I try to write about in the story is that you know, even a year a year on, even you know, we know this disease well enough to have developed incredible vaccines against it. Nevertheless, um, there are a lot of things about the dynamics of spread that are still mysterious to us. And not just spread, not just spread, but the physiology of infection. 
a lot of that too. Oh, you know. Oh my um, God, we have no idea. <laughs> we think we know, but we really have like no idea. Yeah, yeah. But especially when you get to out to out out of like the sort of consideration of the individual patients and right. how um, cases grow under what conditions. You know, there are just a lot of variables that we we know are playing some role, but we don't know what role. So there are climate factors, there are sunlight factors, there are how people live in, you know, whether they're dense or spread out, how they commute. There are cultural things about, you know, how comfortable you are wearing a mask or whether you kiss on the cheek or shake hands and, um, you know, all the way, you know, down through, you know, there's some, some scientists I spoke to hypothesized about, you know, if you're living out in a, in a more natural environment, you encounter more, um, more threats to your immune system, your immune system may be just better trained and, and people in places like say, you know, Northern Europe or the U.S. are living in somewhat sanitized environments and our immune systems are, are somewhat more compromised as a result. And there are a lot of more, you know, speculative hypotheses even than that, like that the populations of East Asia are more, you know, people live in closer proximity to bats. That's like the center of the world's bat population. And so there may have been some additional exposure to not this coronavirus, but similar coronaviruses, which could have trained us to some degree to respond um, but the short answer is, you know, a lot of that is really mysterious and indeterminate. And one thing we can point to is not about the policies adapted per se, but how quickly those policies were enacted, which is to say, like, when you have a disease that grows at a rate like this, um, possibly the most important determining factor is just how quickly you do whatever it is you're going to do. Because if you wait until you have, you know, in the U.S., when, when New York City shut down, there were... 3 million cases already in the US. If you wait to that point, no matter how much testing and surveillance you're doing and how much contact tracing, um, how much quarantine you're doing, it's going to be really hard to get it all the way to zero. Okay, stop. Because I'm, I'm going to make you stop again because you've packed yeah. a ton into this. And I, I'm, still, I'm still parsing out the original statements, but let's go into this one a little bit. One of the things I, I, I agree with everything you said. I think everything you said was 100% accurate. However, there was something missing, and I find it odd as a physician that that piece was missing because when we evaluate some small population or even a large population with uh, disease manifestations and there's a clear pattern in sort of how the disease manifests, our first move is to go, well, what's going on genetically in that population? First move. You didn't even mention that, which I was like, whoa, because I'm not saying that these other ones may not be the cul- culprits. They may be the culprits. Genetics may have nothing to do with it. But our first move as biologists is to look at the gene-environment interaction, always. And yeah, so, I think, I think that, you know, that, I think that's certainly um, another possible factor. That the, the reason I'm, I'm sort of less focused on that myself is not to say that it's impossible or that we shouldn't be investigating it. It's to say that when you look at the sort of global meta-analyses of infection fatality rate, um, when it's corrected for age, actually the IFR seems remarkably consistent all across the world. Even, um, oh, even in Asia? Yeah. So it's, oh. you know, they, they basically limited their cases dramatically. And then there's a lot of variation based on age, which is one reason why the global South has done so well. It's because their populations are much younger. But right. the age of this disease is so... It's such a huge part of the phenomenon of it. Yeah, I think we've actually really undersold it in the yes. U.S. You hear yes. about we, no, we, we, we've actually li- we've actually lied about it. We, we lied it's, about it. Approach, approach is a lie. I probably yeah. wouldn't go. Well, it, we lied about. It. I'm going to tell you the way we lied about. It. We lied about it the same way we overstated some of the AIDS risks. I, I was a big part of that push to educate people about AIDS, and we were we were hysterical. I mean, we were and we were you know we felt if we. And I remember Fauci back in the day. Fauci is the reason I went on the radio. Is 1984, and he kept saying there are going to be two million dead. There are going to be two million dead. And four years later, he's like, "Good job, 175,000." It doesn't matter what we said or how much we scared people. We did a good job. We went from two million to 175,000. Job well done. Then in the 90s, we started having people go, going, "Oh, that was not accurate. You overstated. You exaggerated," which we did, and and. We lost them as a result of that. And then, then we have people stopping using condoms in the 90s because they didn't want to hear anymore. It's an interesting thing I learned about public health education, which is you do not say anything inaccurate. You will lose people. You bring them in. You get them to buy in. You tell narratives. You use humor. We learned this through HIV and AIDS. We didn't say, and I've said this many times, if you have sex, you're killing your partner. You're going to kill him. If you go out without a mask, you're killing your grandma. 
I where did that come from? Uh, that's that's. I mean, I would say even beyond the even beyond the sort of accuracy question, I think yeah. there is just a, a communication issue, which is to say that almost all of the public health messaging was was sort of like um, advocating for absolute vigilance um, and acknowledging no need for you know humans to socialize and interact, and it certainly didn't emphasize questions of risk management, which. We heard a lot, actually, from, from veterans of the HIV um, experience who said, you know, over time, we learned that the best way to manage this is to teach people how they can navigate this yes. new landscape of yes. risk. And it's, it's a higher landscape of risk. Like, we need to understand that. Yeah. But if any risk is unacceptable, but that's David, going to be David, telling. 20 years of literature on how to do that. We, we like, yeah. learn. Here's, here's what we learned. You you got to have a relatable source, somebody that looks and acts like you, same age maybe, uh, a narrative about that person where the consequences of their actions are brought to bear. Humor, music, that's it. You got it, and and get people to buy in. Except you or me in a box, people push back automatically. That's just how it works. And, and really, I, when I, you do, why we left that behind? I was I was stunned. <laughs> it was stunning to me that we left that behind. The, the, and the HD question is so it's so important, I think, in thinking about the pandemic, because, you know, we do hear we did hear all the way through the elderly are more at risk. Yeah. But, you know, that didn't translate like uh, someone who's in their 80s is hundreds of times more at risk than someone. That's in their right. 60s, That's right. And thousands of times more at risk than someone in their 20s. And, you know, that in a, in a sane world where we had a truly effective response, we might have really engineered that response along those lines and done, you know, protected those people much more aggressively and allowed people who are much less at risk to live their lives in a less intruded upon way. I don't, th- you know, I think there are those who say, I think it's a fair point that we didn't, we, we've sort of demonstrated we weren't capable of protecting those people in the way that we, we probably needed to. But I think in, in processing this information at an intellectual level, it's important to keep in mind that that is overwhelmingly the determinant of your individual risk and your social risk. If your population as a whole is young, you may have a lot of cases. We've seen this throughout the global South. You may have some issues, but the death tolls are going to be relatively small. And in places where populations are older, it's just much, 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 much harder. And that makes the experience of Japan, I think, the most interesting um, experience in the pandemic because they have an elderly population. In a lot of ways, they're culturally more Western than a lot of other East Asian countries. Um, they actually didn't ever go into lockdown. Um, they were aggressive in, in advising mask wearing and sort of imposing social distancing so that, you know, pretty quickly they got, they were, they were sort of saying you couldn't gather in groups more than 10 or 20. Um, whereas in the West, we, we first went to like, you can't get in a group bigger than 5,000. You can't get in a group bigger than 5,000. Well, it depends what state you were in. In our state, yeah. we were told to shelter in place. Yeah. To hide in our bedrooms. I mean, what? I, that hasn't been since 11th century Venice, and it didn't work. And and by the way, the horse was well out of the barn by then, too. Yeah, I mean, you know, looking back on it, I, I think I'm less confident than you may be that we couldn't have done something with those um, shelter-in-place guidelines. But we needed to sort of do something to earn that, you know, the, the public was doing was burdening themselves, and the public health establishment and government had to respond by building out the policy infrastructure that would allow all of us to return to life in relatively short order. And well, that was how those shutdowns were sold to us that, you know, we're going to have to suspend our lives for yeah. a month or two, but no, no, listen, when we get out, I, we're going to have mass testing, et cetera, et cetera. And that just didn't happen. Right. And, and I don't, you and I are not disagreeing on really anything, frankly, we have just little nuanced kind of adjustments in how we see these things. I, I see, I see the lockdowns the same way you do. I thought when they happened, I kept saying, did the CDC suggest it? Did Dr. Fauci suggest it? Where did you get this even idea from? Oh, the CCP, President Xi? Oh, well, that's where you got the idea from? Okay. We really don't know what's going to happen here. I'm a good citizen. I'm going to follow the leaders. They're in a tough position. They've got to plan for the worst case scenario. This seems excessive for me, but but I'm going to be a good citizen and, and support it, uh, even though I, I kind of had a sense it was excessive. Never imagined it would become a way of life or something that become yeah, yeah. not but, but 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 some sort of like badge of honor to be to be told what to do and then to go hide in your bedroom. I it, it just and, and by the way, as it went along, as you were saying, the the utility you said it yourself, the shutting down late doesn't necessarily do anything. So let's talk about where shutdown does work. My understanding, it works if you have an isolated population and your incidence is less than one percent. Is that about shape it up for you? 
you may know the data better than I do. I don't know exactly the thresholds, but it's certainly the case that it's much more effective when the disease spread is low yeah. and when you have all these other barriers to spread in place. Well, it's not just more effective. It is effective versus not effective. <laughs> you, can't, you cannot control the virus once you're over 1% with those sorts of measures. Now, you might, might be able to slow it down. And, and I understand that was the original idea, was mitigation efforts. But it went from mitigation to one death is too many. Well, now now we can't drive cars. Now you can't ride a bike. Now you can't walk in, tra- you know, in the streets of New York. I, I, one death is too many. I, I, that's an insane policy in a pandemic, which is defined by excess death. Defined. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. We, we, there was a period of time when we probably could have instituted policy responses that might have allowed us to pursue that goal Agreed. of one death is too many. Agreed. But by the time well, we, no, one we death got too many. to – One death is too many. <laughs> then you don't have a pandemic, right? Well, I mean, you know, look at what happened in New Zealand, for instance. They, they were able to do that much more effectively. Yeah, um, but not, now, not by saying we have one death. We're going to try to get to zero transmission. That's a little different goal. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, that's true. Um, but, you know, by the time the U.S. and indeed all the countries of Europe even tried to pursue that goal, it was impossible, and that yeah. meant that we had yeah. – we, but we didn't retool our approach yeah, that's to right. respond to the conditions. I the completely, completely – And what it. was really striking to me in thinking about this global response is that these – you know, this, these, this real pattern, you know, you had across East Asia and Oceania a quite successful effort to, you know, effectively defeat the virus, um, ranging across countries that are, you know, authoritarian and liberal democracy, ranging across countries that are rich and poor with very different healthcare systems, Um Across the global south, you had a pattern where there were, at least to the extent that we can trust the data, um, high caseloads and low death rates. And then all across what we used to think of as the West, you know, Europe and the Americas, we just had, you know, total failure. And what I was trying to, well, first of all, I just wanted to sort of make that point, especially to Americans who are preoccupied with, um, you know, with the federal response and the failures at the federal level in the U.S. to make that point and say, Everything may have looked awful here, and it was, but also when you look at the big picture, we were basically middle of the road. And then to think a little bit about why it would be the case that all of these countries may have responded in similar ways and suffered similar failures. And I don't think I got to definitive answers there, but I do think, you know, it's perhaps the biggest question that sociologists and public health academics will be thinking about going forward. Why is it that, you know, we valorize Angela Merkel and her leadership of Germany. Why is it that, you know, she was her, the performance of her country was so much closer to the performance of Portugal than um, it was to New Zealand or Australia, which did much, 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 much better. And, you know, in the piece, I I talk about two things. We already talked about speed, which I think is, is one of the significant ones that if you're going to make an effort, you got to make it really fast. And the the other one is that um, related is just that we regarded the disease at first with, um, you know, some patronizing disinterest. We looked at what was happening in China and we didn't think we had to do anything because we thought, you know, those Chinese, they eat those, that eat those exotic animals that, you know, crazy cuisine gives rise to crazy diseases. And we looked at what was happening in Wuhan and we thought, oh, you know, it's authoritarian country. They do that all the time. It's nothing we even need to prepare for by building out our testing capacity or anything like that. All across Asia with countries that have much more, you know, close relationships with China, they all thought, you know, Jesus Christ, we got we got to get our act together and respond. And almost two one, they did. You know, in South Korea had a had a significant early outbreak and got it under control. Almost everybody else took preventative, preemptive measures quickly enough that the disease didn't even really get the kind of foothold there that it got elsewhere in the world. And part of that is because those countries are not at the center of global commerce in the way that the U.S. did. We were bringing many more cases in. Um, but, you know, it's also, I think, has to do with um, our reluctance to disrupt our systems and take new approaches and understand that we're in a new situation. Now, there's also the question of what happens when we see that the measures we are taking are failing or are failing to deliver the, the outcomes that we hoped for. But I think initially, the problem was just that we, we didn't even want to do anything. So when, when the disease was in China, we thought it's over there, it's not going to come here. When it was in Italy, people in Spain and France thought, well, it's just in Italy. We don't have to deal with it. When it got to Spain and France, people in the UK thought we don't have to do anything. Same in the US, where even you know across the country, we didn't take the opportunity of our advance, you know, our lead time on it, seeing it unfold around the world to do the kinds of things that were necessary. And all through the, you know, the medical app, the medical infrastructure of the country, 
we're really reluctant to innovate and take, um, you know, take sort of novel measures. You know, I talk at some length in the article about rapid testing, which could have been deployed much, much more. Um, I mean, they just approved a rapid test like yesterday. Well, do you know why they held out? Well, I, I mean, my understanding, you may have a different perspective. My understanding is that, that you know, there is this difference in the clinical standard between. No, that's not why they held out. Well, you tell me. They wanted control of the data. It was insane. They wanted to be sure that they were collecting the data and every test result they had access to. And you were not allowed to have any tests beyond those that the CDC could garner access to. Now, I understand they needed to watch the epidemiology, but that was an insane decision. That was absolutely categorically insane. As you were saying, they're just now approving them, and they need to be on every – at every 7-Eleven, they should be at the checkout counter. We should – testing should be part of what we do. The government can just send them to everybody. Yes. Like it could could show up in your mailbox once a week. Yes. Yeah, it should. It could have. It could have. They did not trust the American public to report it properly. And that is. Well, I think that they didn't trust the American public to respond to the information yeah. either, and that's yeah. another you know issue, which is yeah. that I, I see um, the testing yeah. as one of the major, 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 major failures of the whole thing. And then, yeah. and then the CDC's infrastructure for the testing they did had was just awful, terrible, terrible. Yeah. And, and I'm a fan of the CBC. I'm a fan of Dr. Fauci's, but this is this was a major, major, major uh, faux faux pas. Um, and the, the, ma- the masks unfolded on a similar um, on a similar storyline, which is to say, you know, they were imperfect. But they were going to offer some protection, and the public health advice was therefore don't wear them at all because they didn't trust the public to understand and process the that. Well, it was it was some of that. Yeah. It was some of that. But you you here here's the part that you, the perspective you you don't have that that I have, which is that my training in infectious disease was always when it comes to viruses, your hand is the main vector. We yeah. don't want your hand near your face. And oh, by the way, we need all these PPEs for all the people in the hospital. So I, I completely stood by them when they said, no, 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 no. Let's not do the mask right now because when you put the mask on your face, you bring the virus in. It wasn't you, until they you knew. Looking back, that, that was still the, a wise decision. I do. Uh, well, it was not wise. It was the only decision based on currently available knowledge. They did not understand that. Surf- Remember how we were wiping down surfaces and everything? Yeah. Surfaces were a big deal. Washing hands. Blah, blah, blah. We didn't understand that this was an aerosol-driven disease pretty much exclusively and, and how the aerosols and the droplets worked hadn't been fully worked out yet. We just wanted your hands away from your face and we wanted the PPP, P, the protective gear for the ICU. So, I mean, listen, just the fact that Dr. Fauci got up and gave that advice doesn't mean that 10 minutes later he could not give another – it's not an irreversible thing to say, hey, man, don't wear a mask right now. And then when it becomes clear to use it, all right, let's go. Let's start wearing masks. I, that, one was, that one was hard for me to, to – Fault them on. Same thing with the looking at China and not preparing. You will not find the word lockdown or social distancing anywhere in any infectious disease or epidemiology textbook anywhere. It doesn't exist as a concept. So the idea that China was suddenly doing that was not so – it looked like they were hiding something, frankly, because it was so far from anything that's recommended in medicine to this moment in history. And still, we'll be evaluating whether this is something yeah. we'll recommend going forward. It, it was not; it's not a concept. Do, do you know where the idea of local lockdowns came from? Are you familiar with that history? No, tell me. A fourteen-year-old high school student did a science project in Albuquerque where she built a model for influenza. And mind you, influenza is transmitted on the hands and is transmitted by children. School children typically is where it gets going. She built a model that showed you could isolate local schools as a way of controlling an influenza outbreak. Her dad looked at that. This is 2004. He was a computer modeler at Los Alamos uh, Laboratory and said, "Uh, I think I could build a a larger model to help with this as a pandemic policy. He built a model for local lockdowns, sort of local kinds of quarantines, essentially of – sick people and their contacts. That's essentially what it was. And the Bush administration adopted it as pandemic policy in 2004. No one other than that never contemplated quarantining well people. And if you look at where the transmission occurred, it all occurred in the house. And we, in the meantime, are locking down parks and beaches and (laughs) horse trails where there's been 
the, the, the highest level of transmission I can find out of doors is two cases out of 7,000. And even then, it's those two probably were standing face-to-face with somebody talking you know, out of doors where the, where the droplets can pass. But it just doesn't pass. We should have been encouraging people to stay outside, not stay indoors with the, with the people that are bringing home the virus. We did exactly the opposite. We said, hide in your bedroom, which yeah. was – which again, when you – when you're – medically trained and you look at all that it was it was very confusing it was hard to understand where it was coming from it was hard to understand what what that was all about and it just it just came and and some of it in my estimation was you you mentioned the federal government taking being too cavalier which they were and then everybody else just took the opposite extreme. It was some sort of weird action reaction what wasn't it oh i mean i, I think you know you have to see the, the cultural response as a part of the American culture war. I mean, the yeah. way that, you know, especially social media shaming about say going to beaches. And, I mean, it was, it was so charged and travel with the holidays and Bizarre. You know, it was, you know, and I think now that Trump is out of office, I think it's, it's useful that we're sort of, we're able to think a little more clearly and a little more expansively about what, where we failed and where we succeeded. I think yeah. that, some of the charge of those conversations has, has disappeared, which is you know going to be useful going not, forward. Not, listen, I, Adam and I were talking yesterday. He went out on the, his horse trail. He lives in a small community outside, suburb outside Los Angeles. Never more masks in people 65 and above. Everybody wearing a mask, all vaccinated. This is an upper middle class yeah. neighborhood. Everybody's vaccinated. 100% mask, 100% shaming anybody who's walking out of doors by themselves without a mask, which is – what's going on is it is it it's it's an interesting question why in the public health you know messaging that accompanied all of the vaccine rollout why was everybody so careful to say we don't know whether this prevents transmission yeah now there is like there's a sort of a discrete question of like why didn't we test for that in the trials when we could have that was probably a failure would have taken longer to decide that we could have said as every scientist I spoke to on or off the record said, we expect that this is going to be yeah. quite protective against transmission. Yeah. Um, but the messaging was almost in the opposite direction, that we had to act as though there was no protection against transmission at all, just against the severity of the disease. And, you know, again, it was this, this um, reflex return to vigilance, advising vigilance in all ways and at all times, rather than understanding the value of a more nuanced piece yeah. of advice. We're, we're still in that, where we have this head of the CDC talking about impending, I feel impending doom. Impending doom? Hey, we're doing great. Now, I'm worried about the variants. I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a COVID survivor. It, was, it, was, it sucked. It's no fun. And I do not want a variant. And I, I wear a mask when I'm traveling or when I'm in a big group. Whatever. I'll, I'll, I want to protect myself. And I'm going to take the vaccine on top of that. There's a lot to be done from a nuanced standpoint, but impending doom, if that's true, then there's nothing we can do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think, I think it's possible that we have a, a surge here in the spring, but it's, I think it's extremely unlikely that we see anything like we saw in January and in December, January, and February. And I think that kind of language suggests that, that outcome, which I think, I, I think you're right, is irresponsible. On the other hand, you know, when I look at that experience, the January, February experience, I am astonished at how poorly we seem to understand that even at the time. You know, I have a bit in my piece where I talk about, you know, this collapse in cases that happened, I think it was at the very end of February. The CDC collects models projecting, you know, the next few weeks of the pandemic. They, I think it was 26 models. They, they say, these are our gold standard models. These are our best tools for understanding the near future of the disease. And at the, in the middle of February, two of those 26 models included in what's called their 95 percent confidence interval, the outcome that actually happened by March 1st, which means that only two of 26 approved models said that there was even a 5% chance of what happened happen, happening. That is an astonishing indictment of our ability to understand yeah. and model this disease. That's right. So even though I think, you're, I'm, I, I think I'm with you that this impending doom statement seems really off the mark, I also have been myself taught over the course of the year a lot more humility. Yes, hundred percent. Um, yes, humility is the, the way to. Off, yes, you know? is this virus? Well, that's part of the reason you and I are sort of reacting to the excesses because everyone should be humble. <laughs> like, hopefully, this is good. We don't know, but but they've gone to all the way to the other side of the boat. 
where, for instance, you know, Merck has a really good antiviral prod- product, and I was reading the data on it. I was like, oh, my God, this looks great, even for a phase one and phase two trial. And their rhetoric was, we have no idea if this is going to work. <laughs> I was like, what are you doing? You- in, in the history of pharmaceutical companies, I've never seen rhetoric like that in the face of this positive uh, phase two trials. It's usually like, we are very excited. We're going to get on to phase three. And we're going to get this thing tomorrow. It's going to be amazing. This was, Instead, it was, we have no idea. We have no idea if this is going to work. Uh, I think the hydroxychloroquine thing is what made everybody so scared of therapeutics. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there there are some people I've spoken to and work I've read that suggest that it really was that really was costly, not just the hydroxy it's like itself, but the, in the early phases of the pandemic, there was this impulse, especially in Western countries, in hospitals where people were, you know, accustomed to think of themselves as heroic doctors trying new creative treatments that may have really really cost um, a lot of lives and. There was one virologist I spoke to who said, you know, if you would staff those hospitals with World War I field doctors who were just trained to try to keep people alive at all costs, they might have had a much better outcome than the doctors that we had today who were trying to throw all these, like, all these drugs at, at the patients. And now we're in a much better position. We have treatments that we know work much better. Um, and the, the death rates are actually remarkably low compared to where they were in the spring. Right. We have, we have summer, good treatments. In we part have, as a result. Yeah, we have good treatments. But but I'm here to tell you I was involved with those a lot of those cases. None of those medications hurt anybody. We're using antibiotics that people hand out by the fistful. We're using hydroxychloroquine. Do you know hydroxychloroquine is the only medication I'm aware of you're allowed to keep pregnant women on because it's so inert? It's considered completely inert. And that if you live in, as you say, the southern hemispheres, you're taking it every day or once a week, whatever. It's completely inert. And yes, I understand in advanced cases, there was issues of cardiac arrhythmias. That's an extremely complicated situation. We we definitely overused ventilators early on. Oh, my God, yes. For sure. For sure. You may be surprised to learn that insurance doesn't always cover the full cost of an emergency medical flight. I am not surprised to find that out, but I, what I am surprised is that with AMCN, membership costs as little as $85 a year and covers your entire household. Even with comprehensive coverage, you can still get hit with substantial deductibles and copays. Protect your family, protect your finances with an Air MedCare Network membership. As a member, if an emergency arises, the expense of air medical transport is completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. As I said, membership costs as little as $85 a year and covers your entire household. That's amazing. Covers them every day, even when you're away from home. That's just pennies a day. We all know that the unexpected can happen. An AMCN membership is protection no family should be without. And for a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you'll get up to a $50 e-gift card when you join. And remember, it's only $85 a year. Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew. Use offer code Drew. Well, you've heard me talk about the fact that aging begins in our cells. Of course, the cells are what age. Many aspects of our daily life can influence how well our trillions of cells perform and ultimately how we age. Age-associated cellular decline, or AACD, is a time-related deterioration in the way our cells function as we age, beginning in our 40s, accelerating in our 60s. Over time, our cellular process becomes less efficient, which can contribute to things like fatigue, reduced muscle strength, impaired cellular defenses. To help address these changes, try incorporating nutrients that work on a cellular level into your wellness routine. Celtriant Cellular Nutrition is a breakthrough range of nutritional products with cellular nutrients to target cellular performance. Celtriant is the first brand to provide a range of cellular nutrients, including nicotinamide riboside, urolithin A, and glycine plus N-acetylcysteine to help combat key sources of AACD. Celtriant is available for purchase at Amazon.com. Check it out. I take it every day. And, of course, our friends at Public Rec, uh, you've got to check out Public Rec. They make leisure wear in waist and inseam sizes that are exactly fit to you because comfort, of course, starts with a better fit. But on top of that, they have this great material. Uh, they're the best. Their best-selling brand is the All Day Everyday Pants, It's and it's a stylish alternative to sweatpants. You, they look like slacks, but they feel like sweatpants. And what I love is the pockets. They have front pockets that are deep enough. They have back pockets. They, 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 they just have thought of everything. These are always my go-to. It's made from a breathable, stretchy, moisture-wicking fabric. You can wear them 24-7, and they'll still look brand new. They have zipper pockets, as I said, so nothing's going to fall out. Come in nine colors. 
I wish that I wish I had more. I, I really I could not have enough of these pants. They are so comfortable. Plus, they've got incredibly comfortable shorts, t-shirts, Henley polos, hoodies. Plus, they have incredibly comfortable shorts, t-shirts, Henleys, polos, hoodies, jackets, even golf gear. And they've launched a women's line, so you can all we can all enjoy public rec. They are the top choice in my rotation. And of course, as the world is opening back up, make sure you've got clothes that are as flexible as your life is. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now they have an exclusive offer just for the Dr. Drew Podcast listeners. Go to Public Rec, R-E-C, P-U-B-L-I-C, R-E-C, publicrec.com slash Drew to receive 10% off. That is Public Rec, R-E-C, publicrec.com slash Drew for 10% off. But again, that's the, but I, I, I only, to me, that's the World War One doctors, World War Two doctors, in effect. I mean, because I remember hearing the Italian doctors saying exactly what you're saying. Like, we know how to keep people alive, and we—that's all we should be doing, and we do that well. No, they weren't doing it well. They were they, bo- it well. they were botching the whole thing. And and back back to the epidemiology and the the models. I, I'm fascinated by that. Remember, we started with a model from uh, the uh, oh, the Oxford group. That was saying that there would definitely be two million deaths in the United States. Two million, period. No matter what we did, remember that. Yeah, I mean, it's. I wrote a piece early in the spring called "What the Models Don't See" that was about the limitations of a lot of this. And I've spent a lot of time over the course of the year thinking about why these projections are so important to me. Like pretty early on, you could have said, "Okay, these are really shots in the dark, and they are, you know, they they shouldn't be guiding our policy in any direct way." And yet, even at an individual level, I was like so I, so invested in having a, a clearer sense of the near future that I put so much stock in in even models that I knew a few weeks ago had, had been shown to be shown to be foolish. But I think it gets back to the point I was making earlier, which is just that you know we crave understanding of this disease, and even now, there's so much that we don't know. There's so much that we don't know. You're, you're so right. You're so right. And it, and I believe it's not just craving understanding. We want to believe we have some control over it. Well, understanding is the first step to control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and your your observations on the February models out of the CDC are spot on to me because we don't know why we don't know why it went up. If you really look at why it went up, it started up before October, before thank, before well before Thanksgiving and before Halloween, and they blamed the whole thing on Thanksgiving, and then at Christmas it turned down, and they were predicting yeah. massive Sorry. increases, and then at the Super Bowl, massive increases, and it was already on its way out, and we don't. If know you why. look at the, you know, the R, the R, the R figure, which yep. is the, the measure of the reproductive rate of the disease, are not the very slight crest around Thanksgiving and a very slight crest around Christmas, but they were not nearly as dramatic as most of the commentary was suggesting. Yes. Um, and at the time, you know, to get back to what we were saying about risk management, there was all of this chatter that like it wasn't even safe to go to. A Thanksgiving dinner, if you had a negative test, that that wasn't sufficient. And I just remember thinking, my God, if you're telling people that, you're telling them they're not going to be able to go have a dinner with their family for a year. That's crazy. And like, yes, a negative test doesn't 100% guarantee that you're not transmissible. It's not 100%, but it's close enough that you should entrust people to make decisions with their lives. You know. Well, and and again, yeah, that that's the right in there is the piece. Uh, What are you saying there? Oh, we're recording this. You're saying we're this may air a little bit later. Gary, can't hear you. You better go on a different mic because I can't hear you. Yeah, I'm just I'm thinking about the specific data that we're referencing and the fact that this will probably come out a little later. So for those listening, we're recording this April 1st. So yeah. if it comes out and the data is a little different, you'll understand what we're referencing. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, and both of us, believe me, we, we're we may be we may have sort of uh, elevated. Uh, our sympathetic nervous system may be sort of uh, on high as we talk about these things because we've all been doing this all year. We both are – I hope I'll speak on your behalf, uh, David. We say this with great humility. We could be wrong on everything. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind. This, this virus knows and that's the only the, – only the virus knows what we're actually talking about. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm relatively confident that the U.S. course over the next few months is going to be, um, you know, pretty good, smooth and, yeah. and comfortable. Like there, yeah. there will still be cases. There will still be deaths. I'm personally a little less worried about the variants than some other folks. The Brazilian one worries me because there does seem to be some real possibility of reinfection risk there. Yeah. The other ones, um, I think the data on, on how, you know, how bad they are is a little more up in the air and we'll see. But it doesn't seem to me to be all that likely. 
that they overwhelm the impact of vaccination, which is so large. You, you have a history degree, correct? Yes. What what period of history was your area of interest? Um, I mean, it was just undergraduate, but it was, I focused on the late 19th, early 20th European history. L- late, late, okay. Uh, like the beginning of modern Europe. Yeah. And, and did you look at Russia particularly during all that? No. Why uh, do you ask? Well, because I, I, and I, and I would not, I was not thinking Russia until you mentioned late. I'm just trying to think of what period of um, European history had something like what I'm about to bring up. And, and, I, and I normally think of France when I think of this stuff, which is you mentioned a minute ago, uh, I forget what we were talking about. We we're talking about, Oh, going to Thanksgiving. And and by the way, it's, as it pertains to going to Thanksgiving, you said – well, you didn't use this word. I'll use it in a minute. But as it pertains to elderly people, say, enjoying Thanksgiving with their family, you may have taken away a year of uh, of an 80-year-old's life, maybe it, more than 50 percent of all they have left. That That is a – you've cashed it in in the name of a theoretical possibility that you want to be able to reduce the risk against them getting it for sure – but you've cashed in a year with their family. For, you've done it. And that is a terrible bet, in my opinion. And when you're much old, and by the way, I take care of a lot of elderly patients and they're pissed. They want to be asked, they, they want to be in charge of whether they want to take that risk or not to see their grandkids. They may be the last Thanksgiving or the second to last or the third to last, but it's not going to be the, the 20th to last. They've got these, it's a cashed in a piece of their life that is valuable and it was cashed in with no sense of of um, well no sense of agency and this is the word i wanted to use it feels like we have taken away agency by not being as you say more nuanced with the information and getting people to buy into the public health messaging we've done what we've done by taking away agency and that is a weird thing for us to do it seems to me well, in a way we haven't, in a way we haven't, because we we haven't done really any enforcement of any of these policies. So on some level, it's been um, almost invariably voluntary. And the messaging has been very extreme. Not in California. Not in California. You had to shut your businesses down. You couldn't be seen on the street. It was shelter in your room or we'll, or we'll give you a – we'll tell you to. Yeah. Well, businesses, I guess, is a little bit different. And, but at the level of the individual person – you know, If you if, went on the if, beach, if you went on the beach, you'd get hauled in. I, I saw people getting hauled in by the well, fall people, let's, the lifeguards. Well, let's highlight the best one, which was the guy paddleboarding in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, that yeah. was that was the funniest. And they one. went after him. And it's like, they're, no, they were dead serious about it. And these, I felt terrible for the lifeguards because they were very ambivalent about enforcing this stuff, but they had to. And again, no agency for the. It's it, it reminded. Well, I'm going to say something extreme now. When I was watching, because I was a lifeguard in my younger years, and, and so I watched them and talked to them, and I felt terrible for them. And I remember as I was talking about, I was thinking, oh, oh, this is how people, this is how the average German suddenly became enforcers of whatever. It's just they just had to. It's just oh, someone yeah, to force extreme. them to. Yeah, it is extreme, <laughs> but it, how extreme? I could never understand how that happened. I could never understand how that happened. Now I looked at people who were doing things that were insane and harming people, and they just had to do it. They had to follow orders. Well, what's really interesting to me about that is that some of the measures that could have been taken very early on were understood, especially at the kind of intellectual level, as a bridge too far. Like if we were going to, say, do mass testing, it, that was considered to be too much of an invasion of cherished, Amer- cherished American liberties. Yeah. And yet we stumbled into a you know, policy response that was in almost every way much more intrusive yes. and much more disruptive than yes. that. Well, and, but wasn't, wasn't that on state-by-state state type level, though? It was the states well, that really did it, right? I mean, just about everything about the response was managed at the state level. Yeah. But, it, it, yeah. it, you know, it, the... the um, you know, we we heard we spent a lot of time worrying about the variations between states and the policy differences. But the differences between pandemic outcomes and underneath that, the differences between individual behavior, you know, from one state to another, were actually much smaller than um, the sort of larger public conversation has um, supposed. I think in part because the public health messaging which was distributed in a much more national way, was pretty uniform. So, you know, we, we know a lot about how Florida did om- almost nothing to prevent the, the, the spread of the disease. But actually, the behavior of Floridians was not all that different than the behavior of Californians, where there was a much, much more aggressive public policy response. And that is another lesson of this more generally, is that, you know, we have an inclination as Americans to think that 
um, especially in the, in the midst of this pandemic, to think that policy drove pandemic outcomes. And what we see, especially once the sort of genie is out of the bottle, once that initial stage has passed, policy interventions are, you know, shape spread, but they don't drive spread. They can, um, you know, they can cut it by 10%, 20% maybe, but um, I'm using those numbers, those, those are, you know, our hypothetical numbers. But, you know, the, the, the influence is on the margin. It's not the main driver of the course of the disease. And the main driver of the course of the disease is human behavior, which seems resistant to much disruption at the public policy level. So, you know, I think that, again, is another, it teaches us some more humility about what we can expect um, and what we, how we should plan our, our policy going forward for, you know, quote unquote, the next one. Yeah. And, and so it's interesting because that's what I took away from your article. Was that? Oh my goodness! After you, after which is kind of what I thought at the time was that once once there's a certain amount of spread, leadership and policy have very little to do with outcome, right? Would it be safe to say that was sort of one of the takeaways? You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't go quite so far as very little to do with it, but it's it's not the main force. Like yeah. when you look at, you know, when you look at again the commonalities between these the fact that the U.S. and Germany and the Czech Republic and Belgium and Brazil all had like roughly similar outcomes, um, it makes you wonder really what the influence of each of those, you know, who those leaders, their leadership and their policy choices, really what they amounted to. Yeah. Um, you know, not to say that the difference between Germany and the U.S. is nothing. You know, Germany, I think, is about 900 or 1,000 deaths per million citizens, and the U.S. is at about 1,600. So you're talking about, you know, 600, a difference of about 600 deaths per million, which is a lot. But when compared to the experiences of East Asia where, and Oceania, where New Zealand has five deaths per million citizens and Taiwan has 0.5 deaths per million citizens, it really just shows you that, you know, all of these Western countries, whatever their policy, whatever their leadership, ended up in roughly the same bucket. And all of these other countries had a totally different experience. And I think we have to really try to investigate, especially now that we're, thanks to the vaccines, a little bit out of the woods, we really need to investigate why it is, what were the driving forces that made Europeans and, and Americans so much more vulnerable um, at the level of individual biology, as you were talking about, at the level of climate and environment, at the level of, you know, public health structures, and at the level of policy, all of those things. Um, because what the main lesson looking at this, you know, if a Martian was observing the, the, um, the development of this disease, the main lesson is like, all of these Western countries, the countries that thought of themselves as the richest, most technologically advanced countries in the world, they did the worst. And all of the, the poorest countries in the world did a lot better. And the middle income countries in East Asia also did a lot better. Now, why is that? Is there a relationship between, is there an inverse relationship between wealth and pandemic preparedness? I mean, there is that. The question is whether it's causal. Um, and, you know, I don't know the answer to that. But the, the, the fact of that, the fact that the countries that for so long thought of themselves as being on the top of the heap, capable of responding to any threat, and protecting their citizens, no matter what that threat was, that those countries did worst is just the illuminating, overarching, and I think historic fact of the pandemic. And and the inescapable correlation is old and fat. That's yeah, it is. It's just, but but it's probably not the whole story. And you're right; people are out there. Lots of people are out there looking at all those issues that you've listed there uh, as potential contributors to to the, these differences. You know, I interviewed a, a smallpox researcher, a guy named Larry Brilliant, very famous vi- infectious disease virologist. And um, he has studied pandemics all over the place. And he said all this business about, you know, state-mandated anything doesn't really matter because people adjust their behavior based on what's available, information available about the circumstance they're in. And it's funny, you mentioned, I think you said Florida versus California or something. I mean, the, the reality is you're right. The behavior wasn't that different, even though the, the state mandates were very different. My son, after he got COVID, went, uh, he was sick for like four days and then went, oh, I've quarantined for this. I'm pissed. So he got in his car and drove across country. And, and he said he, he also then found himself pissed because he went, tried to go to open states because he thought there would be more interesting. The behavior in Texas and Florida and Louisiana and Arizona and California, the same. All about the same. Yeah. All the same. Masks, bars closed, whatever, distancing. And, and, and that's an important point here is that you know, when next time we, we start you know, thinking about taking away agency because people aren't reliable agents, 
That's a gigantic mistake, Gary. Can I ask a question here? Because that's yeah. the second time one of you has alluded in the last 10 minutes to next time. Is, is there a oh, yeah. raising fear that this is going to happen again? Because throughout oh. the beginning of this, it was once every 100 years. Oh, well, this was my point at the beginning. We had a pandemic 10 years ago. I got sick in it. almost killed me. You don't even know it happened. We have pandemics about every 10 years. But we don't now, have this response. Is this going to well, inform the way we respond every That's time? what was so weird about this one to me. Now, this one is different. It was more fatal for older people. It has a weird, R, a terrible R not. It, it was different, and it's not fair to compare and the pandemics. Part of it is yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but only 15% of people are spreaders, we found out now. Now we know. But who are the 15% with that? We don't know yet. Well, I, actually, I think that speaking of genetics, I think that there is a really interesting area of research there that hasn't really been undertaken, which is to think about, we talk about the super spreader dynamics. It's almost always in terms of the social environment that, that a super spreading event can take place. Yeah. But there are also individual variation in how much, say, um, aerosol droplets you produce when you sneeze. And there's been very little understanding of that, but it may it may prove fruitful for the next yes. time if we understand, yes. you know, in the same way that we might understand that someone has asthma or someone has, you know, as a kidney patient, that also they are a sort of natural super spreader that may affect policy going forward. 100%. So. The, the only data I've seen, again, that is associated, again, it's a, these not causational, these you know, sort of early studies, again, old and fat, <laughs> old and fat spreads. But, but the... Um, the other people don't know that you know the do you know what the percentages of spouse transmission my my wife was sleeping next to me the entire night i got sick and viremic i was sick high fever chills the whole yeah, thing go ahead the average person doesn't even spread it to their spouse correct it's right? 15 it's 15% yeah. i spread it to yeah. uh, the r and the average r not is 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 one it's just one to one uh, i and i and i checked all my contacts i spread it to one person, my son, and I had lots of contact. I had lots of contact yeah. with a lot of people while I was getting sick. It's interesting. You know, we were talking earlier about the age skew and, and the old age issue. Yeah. And early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about this, this sort of judgmental talk about the YOLO boomer. Like, why is it the old people that are less focused on the uh, precautions than the middle aged or the young? Mm. And, you know, I think for some of the reasons you were talking about it, you know, I think we should learn to, we should learn from that lesson rather than shaming those people for that that in fact oh. they may have been making a quite rational calculation yes but the ask that we imposed on the young was really really large you know oh. when you think about someone who's in their teens or in their 20s oh my god you don't even know practically at, at least for you know for dying at practically speaking zero yeah. risk um you know it's overstates it a little bit but it's it's a very 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 low risk not different not much different from their risk from other diseases that are circulating quite commonly and We've basically asked them to give up a couple of, you know, a year or more of their lives and then get really angry when we see like 23 year olds gathering in a park drinking on a summer night. And it just, you know, if I were 23, I'd like to think that I would also be acting responsibly. But I think we have to understand that, like, we are asking so much of these people, even though they face so little risk themselves. That's an enormous burden that we've imposed on the young. Forget the burden. The, the, the mental yeah. health consequences you can't even imagine. We're going to be paying for that for maybe an entire generation. It's huge what's happened to those kids. And the kids, drink, the 23-year-olds drinking outdoors, reminder, zero outdoor transmission. Zero outdoor transmission. I can't say that enough. Virtually zero outdoor transmission, particularly if you have some distancing and you're in the sunlight. But anyway, neither here nor there. The the I want to give you a chance to talk about the uninhabitable Earth. Is there are there correlations to be learned uh, about preparedness uh, as it goes to climate change and uh, pandemic policy? I imagine. Well, you know, I think that um, the one of the big lessons is that you know, no matter how protected we feel we are, living in a place like the U.S. Uh, nature can come to bite us. Um, and, you know, I think that's true of climate change. I think it's, it's a lesson of the pandemic as well. I also think that, you know, um, we've shown, we've demonstrated our capacity to really um, upend our own lives in response to threats um, be, through this pandemic. As we've been talking about, it hasn't always been the most thoughtful um, or uh, you know, in, in retrospect, we, we didn't take necessarily the steps that we might have wanted to, but we did a lot. I mean, we, you know, there was a period of time in the spring when more than a billion school children were out of school. Um, you know, you look at the COVID stimulus spending that's um, taken over the, the Western world over the last year. It dwarfs public spending um, that's ever been undertaken before by any of these governments. Hmm. We, we've done it a lot to try to combat this disease and try to protect ourselves, both 
directly from infection, but also um, from the economic impacts. And I think that should sort of give us some hope going forward about what kinds of responses are possible in response to um, to climate threat. I think that you know climate change and more generally um, the you know destruction of um, natural ecosystems are likely to produce more pandemics the more that we you know deforest forests and the more that we develop um, previously untouched places, the likelier we are going to come into contact with novel diseases. And the more that we do that, the higher the risk of these sorts of things. So I think that we are, you know, because of the same forces that are driving climate change, we're likely to see more of these threats going forward. But it may also be the case that we have sort of learned some lessons about our capacity to respond, um, our flexibility as a society, um, and in, you know, in certain ways, our inflexibility in ways that we'd want to sort of attend to in, in designing policy going forward that may help us adapt. And I do think, you know, looking at what's happened in Washington recently, you know, we're to, yesterday Biden is proposing a, a plan that is essentially a climate plan. He's not calling it a climate plan, but it is a huge, huge price tag that would have been laughed off the floor of um, the Senate or the House just a couple of years ago. But because of the new political, social environment that we're in, thanks to the pandemic, it's getting serious airing. And as someone who wants to see a much more aggressive response on um, climate, I'm you know really gratified by that. I think also looking around the world, it's really notable that during the pandemic, many, many countries announced much more ambitious climate pledges that, than they'd ever announced before. Most notably China, which is sort of the main driver of, of climate change this century likely, but also in Japan and South Korea, many individual nations in the EU, but also the EU as a whole, you know, if you count Biden's pledge to get to net zero carbon emissions um, as part of this group, two thirds of global emissions are now committed to a pretty aggressive uh, path of decarbonization. You know, a lot of those pledges, we have to be skeptical of them. We don't know how, how much they'll be honored. But the thing that's most interesting to me is, you know, it's first of all, that pandemic conditions, which we might've thought would predict, would predict, um, you know, distraction from climate change and a sense that we don't have the resources to devote to them have actually produced the opposite and that they've produced the opposite in the absence of a global coordinated negotiating effort like we had in the Paris Accord. So these are not pledges that were made when countries were in a room browbeating each other and putting applying peer pressure to one another and guilting each other into action. They happened because, you know, the leadership of China just looked at their own economy and thought, we're going to be richer if we're cleaner. And Japan thought the same thing and South Korea thought the same thing. EU thought the same thing. The fact that that logic is now here because the price of renewables has fallen so dramatically over the last decade marks a really different chapter for climate change. And, you know, I'm a bit of a climate alarmist. I think inevitably we're going to be at a level of warming that will produce in a lot of parts of the world quite catastrophic outcomes. But there's a much, much more hopeful future uh, available to us now than seemed to be to me to be the case just a couple of years ago, because I think that logic is so clear to so many world leaders that, you know, in part because of the value of eliminating air pollution, but also just the sort of um, naked, you know, growth comparisons between fossil dirty energy and clean energy. Uh, these countries are going to be moving much more quickly than we than we expected uh, just a few years ago. And that's, yeah, that's I mean, cleaner good. cleaner is good. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah. But but I'm surprised that we didn't walk away from the pandemic with more humility. I mean, you and I have more humility, and we don't know if we can really change. I mean, I, f- I find it bizarre that people argue about whether there's climate change. That's a bizarre argument to me. The the argument the conversation should be: Can we do anything about it? Or should you know we, we spend all the energy? Cleaner is good, even if we can't do anything about it. Let's just face it. Um, but should we be trying to manage it as it occurs, which is a different but issue? I think we had, I think we need to do both um, for sure. You know, I, I, I wrote a recent piece about this a little bit, in part because we because the the future is getting clearer. You know, we the, the the floor of where we're likely to end up with warming is higher than we thought, but the ceiling is also getting lower. So we have a better idea of you know, where we're likely to end up, which is probably going to be between two and three degrees Celsius. That means that we can do a lot uh, more effective planning for, you know, in terms of uh, adaptation and sort of defensive infrastructure, all that kind of, also managing migration, all that kind of stuff. And and, and I think I find it weird that some things are off the table, like, you know, forest fires in California are the major source of carbon. That's the major source of carbon emission is fires in California. Yet we do no forestry management and no and then no conversation about uh fourth generation nuclear where people have coal i 
I, if you really want to solve this problem, we got to do all of these things, right? Everything. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. I mean, I, I think most people, even in California, don't know that the, the carbon produced from last year's forest fires were was more than all of the industrial activity of the state, put including together. the automobiles, including the yeah. automobiles. All right, listen, my friend, uh, it was a privilege to talk to you. Um, thank you so much for the the work you do. Thank you for writing these articles. They are uh, clear and important, uh, and I believe. You know, as history is written, these uh, the, both the essay in New York Magazine and I suspect the uninhabitable Earth will be sort of moments, the, the things that people can look at and go, "This was our, this was a good a level of understanding at that moment." Um, you've done well, a great, you very much. great, great job, and it's really why I wanted to talk to you because I, I thought I thought you were you're pulling it all together and then sort of presenting it to the reader and letting us make, make our own decisions about it. And uh, I thought it was it, that's un, kind of unusual these days, frankly. And so uh, yeah, I, I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, all right. Uh, other than, let's see, Twitter, D. Wallace Wells, anywhere else you want people to look for you? No, just the New York Magazine website. But, um, you know, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see everything I write on there. Anyway, New York so. Magazine has still got a lot of good stuff going on. And uh, The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming, uh, David Wallace Wells, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, thanks, we'll see you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Hey, movie lovers, who needs a theater when you have Pluto TV? Grab your popcorn and your streaming device because free movies are here. Pluto TV is your home for movies. Great movies are playing anytime in over 20 exclusive movie channels of action, horror, rom-coms, and more. Watch hits like Saving Private Ryan, Pretty in Pink, and Charlie's Angels all for free. No signups, no fees, no contracts, ever. Download the free Pluto TV app on any device.